Take your copy of the Bible. Turn to John chapter 13. I'm going to start in verse 12. This is where I'm going to start the reading for a little bit of setting. When Jesus had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher, Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you ought also to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he dipped the morsel... He gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast. Or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread... He immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children... Yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. 
Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will crow, will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let's pray. Father, we do ask yet again that you would give life and light to this time, to your word, that we may hear, understand, and believe. And it's not our desire simply to amass knowledge, but to love you and to hear from you. May you speak and may we listen yet again, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You probably remember the moment or a moment like it. Back when you were a kid, you'd gone over to a friend's house to play. You were playing with your friend or maybe their brothers or sisters. There was a group of you there together. And that was the moment when the friend's mom realized the friend had done something naughty. Now, not naughty like you two were you know, being mischievous together, but the friend had been disobedient, and that was the moment where the friend got caught. And you probably remember the feeling, mom comes in on a holy tear, she's furious, and lets the child have it, and you're standing there like, oh, don't notice I'm in the room. <laughs> Don't notice I'm in the room. All the wrath stay on that person. Don't spill over to me. And it's awkward, isn't it? Oh, my goodness. Maybe y'all didn't have friends like I did. It's awkward. And after the friend fully gets in trouble and punishment is administered, whatever that is, do you go back to laughing and cutting up quite the same way? No. There's a little bit of sobriety, isn't there? A little bit of quietness. Maybe eyes are a little bit bigger. The friend is a little bit embarrassed and ashamed, and you're like, I wish I wasn't here right now. I want to be home reading a book. I want you to harness that feeling, that awkwardness, That uncomfortability, that I wish I were somewhere else reading a book. Don't apply it to the sermon, (laughs) but apply it to the text. We oftentimes, when we get to verse 21, we've packed up that emotion from the first 20 verses and we've left it behind and forget that's actually the aroma of the story. That's the backdrop of what's happening. You remember chapter 13 starts with the disciples coming in. They're getting ready to celebrate Passover. They're bickering like siblings about who's most important, who gets to sit next to Jesus today. And it's, you know, and they're bickering back and forth. And then Jesus stands up and he takes his clothes off and he wraps the towel around them and he washes their feet. And my goodness, is it awkward. And you get the impression that while he's washing their feet, no one's saying anything. Again, it's that, I wish I weren't going to be noticed. Maybe he'll forget I'm here and just skip me and go to the next person, please. Until Peter, classic Peter, runs his mouth. Open mouth, insert both feet. And Jesus rebukes him. 
And rightfully so. Look, if, if you're not going to let me do this, you have no part with me. Which is, I mean, that's a pretty strong rebuke. It is, in essence, a, oh, by the way, if I don't get to do this, you can stand up and leave now. That's, in essence, what Jesus tells him. That, I mean, that's a, that's a stinging rebuke. You don't want to join in? Fine. You can take your ball and go home. You can leave right now. Just pack them and go. It's fine. Go. Eee. And Jesus builds it all to the end where he says, you don't understand everything that's happening yet. You, you don't get it. And I, I, I understand that you don't get it. You're going to, though. This whole foot washing is a portrait of my salvation. You're going to understand it in just a matter of days. But it doesn't apply to all of you. And you know, they would have caught that. That's not one of those things that would have like, you know, kind of sailed by and they missed. I mean, remember, these are guys that are bickering about who's the most important. And he says, oh, by the way, my specialness is only for some of you. Ooh, wow. Mm, yep, no, I got that. I may have missed exactly what he's talking about in terms of specialness. I may have missed what he's talking about in terms of service. But I caught the fact that it's for some and not for others. And verse 21 turns to later on in the meal, and again, it's still awkward, it's still uncomfortable, and they're lounging around. We actually find out who won the battle, who is the most important. We find that out in this passage. It's fun. After saying these things, Jesus is troubled in spirit, and it makes sense. He's, he's celebrating the Passover feast with them, which he understands is his own death. It's like a, a you know, prisoner on death row who's having his last meal, the one he specifically ordered. In this case, it's the one he planned out from before the foundation of the world in which every single feature of it would scream, oh, by the way, I'm about to die. That would be a hard meal to eat. Every single piece of it reminding you that in just a matter of hours, you're going to be on a cross. And then, oh, by the way, you're going to have the wrath of God heaped upon you. Well, no joke, <laughs> he was troubled in spirit, you think? Every morsel, every taste, everything reminding him, you're dying in just a couple of hours. And all the while, right across the table from him, is the man who's going to be used to make it happen. So Jesus says, truly, truly, that's his intense saying of verily, this is absolutely the truth. Not that anything he says isn't the truth, but like, pay attention. I say to you, one of you will betray me. And this would have gone off like a bomb in the room. He already said some of his stuff is for some people and not for others. He's already making divisions between us. Oh no, now we've got a traitor in our midst. And I think their response is one that needs to be certainly understood and mined to plumb the depths of. Verse 22, the disciples, the disciples that have been together for years, traveling with Jesus for years, the disciples that have been active participants in miracles, the ones who have been preaching, who have been doing all kinds of ministry together, the disciples who have lived together, who know each other, who know all of their inmost secrets, look at each other and go, um, who is it now? Jesus identifies a traitor, and they all don't know who it is. Now, that is an extremely important point to understand. 
And the entirety of the scriptures, aside from Adam, we're probably looking at the greatest traitor in human history. I mean, this is the guy who sells Jesus for money. I mean, that is bad. So we're talking like height of evil kind of things. And they don't even know who it is. Within their own church, they don't know. And this is with people they've been living with for years and years and years. I think it's important that we understand likewise that we as humans don't get to see the heart. Only the Lord does, and sometimes it's not quite as clear as we might suspect. I mean, it's crazy to think about Judas. He preached the same way they all did. He had been sent out to do ministry the same way they all had. He had been given, in some sense, the power of God the same way they all had. It wasn't like they went, oh, you know what? We've all done miracles except for Judas. It must be that guy. When they look at the outward works, his outward works look just like theirs. They don't know the difference. Likewise, it shouldn't surprise us if we find out the people that we thought were Christians have turned away. It should not be a shocker, unfortunately. But the bomb goes off. And the curiosity is a little bit too great. And it makes sense who the curiosity is going to be too great for. Because he's the guy who just got rebuked by Jesus. Remember, Jesus just washed everybody's feet, and the only person to get in trouble is the guy sitting across the table from him, sitting there going, I hope it's not me, I hope it's not me, I hope it's not me, I hope it's not me. And so finally, he looks at the guy sitting right next to Jesus, and is like, hey, can you ask him? I ask him if it's me. I I ask him, I want to know. So... Verse 24, Peter motioned to the disciple of Jesus. We find out who's the most important, who's the one sitting right next to Jesus? It's John. John is actually the one who is there. It's why he neglects to mention his name every time he's mentioned. He doesn't identify himself. He's the disciple that Jesus loved. Why? Because he was the favorite. He was the most important. He was the most special. So he neglects to mention that fact. So Peter's like, hey, John, can you ask him who? Ask him who? And so John is, and and this is, again, I love the mental picture that you get from the tenderness here. Men do not interact this way together. I think it's probably a little bit to our loss today. Remember the U-shaped table. Jesus and John are sitting in the center. Peter's probably sitting at one of the far ends. Some commentators think that after he got his feet washed, he stood up and walked to the low spot because he was too embarrassed. And it would make sense. The man just got absolutely called out brutally by Jesus in front of his peers. Peter's pointing to John, get him to ask. Well, John's leaning on his left elbow with his feet away from the table. So table here, elbow here, free hand so that he can dip and eat here. Jesus is right behind him. How do you ask Jesus a question if you're right here? Well, so that disciple leaning back against Jesus, he in essence rolls into Jesus' arms as he leans back and looks up directly into his Savior's face. This is an amazingly tender moment of this young man. He's probably, you know, at this point in the late teenage, early you know, 20s, Laying in the arms of Jesus and it's like, um, Lord, who is it? Now, 
If that conversation is taking place, who else is able to hear this? Well, at this point, they're probably all at this kind of yammering at some point. You've got food noises and such. John is basically in Jesus' arm right there face to face. And it's going to make sense that no one else hears this. I always reading this as a kid was very confused at the end. of like, why are they giving the response they do at the end? They don't hear this conversation. This is a conversation taking place between John and between Jesus with Peter trying to eavesdrop from the other side of the table. <laughs> Lord, who is it? And so Jesus, looking down in his face, he's got a piece of bread and he's sand, and he says, look, uh, I'll show you exactly who it is. And he dips it in, and he hands it to Judas. So does John have any doubt at this point? No, he absolutely knows. And you think Peter's sitting across the room going, oh, oh, it's not me. In 27. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Now this is a, a major turning point in the story because thus far we've known that the forces of darkness are actively opposed to Jesus and everywhere he goes he's casting them out and accomplishing victory over them. But we've not really seen Satan again since the beginning. You remember, he shows up at the very beginning. He, he tempts Jesus with the very scriptures, tempting Jesus to blur his humanity and his divinity. He is a clever temptation. It's him merging his character and become human and divine. And Satan shows back up again. We haven't seen him in a while. And he enters into Judas and possesses him. And if there were not already abundantly clear from Jesus' words, we know now the demons and Satan cannot possess the saints of God, and here they possess a man who is not. And Jesus gives what has to be the most loaded statement I can think of in a very long time. Looking at Judas, knowing his enemy directly in front of him, Satan in his presence, what does he say? What you are going to do, do quickly. Who's steering this ship? It's not Satan. It's not Judas. Jesus is in charge from the very beginning to the very end. What you're going to do, you go do it now. It's a command. It's not permission. It's not like looking at, oh, you're going to betray me. Oh, I wish you wouldn't. Oh, are your feelings hurt? Maybe I'll make you feel. No, it's a command. You go do it. Go do what you need to do. Jesus has been accomplishing his sacrifice perfectly and continues here. Now, 28, it makes sense. You think about the conversation having taken place between John and Jesus with Peter trying to eavesdrop as much as he can. And uh, Jesus says to Judas, he looks at him square in the face and says, what you're going to do, do quickly. 28, no one at the table knew what it said to him. They're like, um, that makes no sense. I thought we were eating a meal together, but okay, fine. And Judas gets up and leaves and they're like, well, maybe he's buying other supplies for more food. Maybe we're running low on food. He needs more food. He's the guy with the money. Okay, it makes, they, they still don't get it, do they? They have no idea why he's leaving because they don't understand he is the betrayer. Maybe he's going to go get some food for the feast. And John ends the section with this short and profound, 
and it was night. And you remember, this actually is calling us back to the very beginning of the book. You remember how he opens his entire story with it's a story of light and dark. And the true light was coming into the world and the darkness of man would not, could not, and did not comprehend him. They rejected him. They turned their face from him as one from whom men hid their faces, stricken, smitten, and afflicted by God. And John now calls us back to that very beginning. You want to know how bad it was for the Lord of life, his very own disciple turned on him. And it's crazy. I mean, think the, the level, the, the depth of the betrayal. This is a man who, when he does ultimately point him out, he's going to use a kiss, something so intimate, so in personal space. He's in the actual realm of Christ and yet turns from him. Now, I do think, again, it's interesting. This is following immediately on the heels of a passage where Christ has said, look, I'm going to serve you a certain way. Oh, by the way, you go and do likewise. And I think it's interesting that the immediate, following immediately after his command to follow him in service is what? He gets betrayed at the deepest level. The reality of the matter is if we are the saints of God and we do follow in Christ's command and we do serve one another, maybe not washing each other's feet, okay, but serving each other in deep and intimate and meaningful ways, what will happen? It's important, the transition here. John, is, he's preaching a sermon to us. It's only a matter of time until we get torched by those that have claimed to be saints. You hear so many stories of people that are like, well, I love Jesus or I love the Bible. I just can't handle the church. Well, I know that's the point, actually. It's designed that way. It's not perfect yet. No one is. And in fact, it's so gracious and so inclusive. Sometimes the wrong people get in. We can't see the human heart perfectly. We can't determine Sometimes the wrong pastors get in. Sometimes the wrong officers get in. Sometimes the wrong members get in. Sometimes we just get it wrong. And the reality of the matter is, anytime we've gotten it wrong, I've got it wrong. I'm sorry about that, obviously. But it is, it is the DNA of what it means to be a saint, to be this side of heaven, to know that betrayal will accompany this life. And the good news is, it happened to Jesus first. It's okay if it happens to you. It's going to happen to you. This actually is going to be a very important point in how we view the world around us because it actually equips us to handle the church differently. So that when we do get betrayed, it's not like, oh, I can't believe it happened. It's like, I knew that was coming. It's just a matter of time. It puts me in good company because it puts me with my Savior. It provides a framework of suffering even inside the church. 
It's amazing how much when I've talked with people who have difficulties with folks, they understand cognitively people out there. They're like, oh, so-and-so is being a terrible human, but they're not a Christian, so I can live with that. But they're like, nah, so-and-so is being a terrible human inside the church, and I can't live with that. Well, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. And Jesus continues here, and here he begins what's called his farewell discourse. This is the rest of the book, really, largely, is him talking to his remaining disciples, those that aren't betraying him, and giving them his final words before he dies. Look what Jesus says here. When he'd gone out, Jesus said, Now, now is the Son of Man glorified. I find that, again, unbelievably interesting. Why is it now and not three minutes earlier? Because now the betrayal is real. Now Satan is involved possessing his man. Now it's going to happen. Now is the time. And God will be glorified. And he gives them a warning. And this is the most tender of kind, the most intimate of warnings. Again, you get this. He's so intimate with John physically. Now he's intimate emotionally with these men to say, little children. And this is no, no demeaning. It's the only time it's used in this book. It is the most tender of terms. If you're going to you know, be like a husband calling a wife sweetheart or uh, love or something, you know, something very tender. Men, little children. I'm with you for just a time, but I'm going to go somewhere, and you're not able to come. But while I'm gone, I want you to have an idea of what will help you understand that you aren't the betrayer of me. Again, this, this is actually an important thing. They're all sitting there wondering, like, am I the guy? Am I the guy? Am I the one that's going to betray you? Am I the one that's going to turn? He says, look, I'm going to give you a mechanism to understand that. I will give you a framework whereby you can look at life and understand we are on the same team. Something to encourage you. Something to remind you that even when I'm not in your presence, you're still on my team. Verse 34, a new commandment I give you. That you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Because he has loved us first, what is the mechanism whereby we can see, kind of be reminded, I'm not the betrayer, I'm not Judas, I'm not the one possessed by the devil. It's how we love one another. What's your relationship to the church like? I had a conversation with a lady a couple of years ago, and she said, you know, I, I love the Lord. I love my Bible. I just loathe the church. So I'm never going back. And I kind of lovingly raised the question, <laughs> if you loathe the church... You give me no indication that the first two statements are true at all. You give me no indication that you actually do love God and that you do love his word because the command that he gives as proof that you love him is that you love the church. 
if you don't love his people, I really have to doubt that you love him. Because it's the marker that he says will accompany it. I mean, he's done it first, and he loved us first, therefore we will love one another. By this, people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Again, that's how they're going to be able to figure out that you belong to me. Is They're going to look at you and they're going to say, man, those people really love each other. It's kind of strange. That's the point. It's in this regard that we understand if the church isn't viewed as strange, she's not doing it correctly. That's the whole point of kind of the thing he's making. Look, Rome is supposed to look at you and they're supposed to see, man, these people are different. There's something really off about them. Like they actually like each other. I don't understand that. Peter is a great encouragement, I think, for those of us that have been committed to learning the hard way. He's just been called out by Jesus. He's just had to try to get the guy next to Jesus to ask him a question. And now he's just going to the coup de grace, just on top of it. This is just beauty of all beauties. Lord, where are you going? I want to go with you. I want to go with you. I want to go. Can I go? Can I go? Jesus, where I'm going, you can't follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Because Jesus knows, where is he going? He's going to the cross. He's going to die, and he's going to die a penal substitutionary death for his people. He's going to take all sin upon him. He's going a place no one else will ever have to go if they don't want to. But, Peter, you will follow. You're not going to follow the exact same path because you won't die for sin the way that I do. You won't die on the cross the same way that I do, but you will die, and you will die a martyr. And we'll meet each other again in glory. And it's only a matter of time, but you can't follow now. Peter, again, man just does not know when to stop. Double or nothing. Double or nothing again. Double or nothing again. Lord, why can I not follow you now? I lay down my life for you. And Jesus' answer, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. And my friends, that would have hurt to hear after him just explaining someone's going to betray him. We forget that part, actually. That when he hears this, this is with all of the punch of the previous meal. Someone's going to betray me. Someone's going to turn against me. Oh, by the way, Peter, you're going to do it too. Oh, by the way, the mark of what my people are going to be like are people that love one another, and you're not even going to do that for me. You are going to be on the other side. Now, it paves the way for the chapter break. Honestly, the chapter break probably should be, um, I would say probably at the end of 35 is probably a better chapter break, but it's going to make sense because what are the next words out of Jesus' mouth? Let not your hearts be troubled. Because you think Peter's heart's troubled at this point. Just a bit. He's been called out by Jesus at the meal. He's worried if he's the betrayer. He's found out he is a betrayer, not the, the betrayer. And now would be a wreck. Well, what do we do with this? Well, obviously we've had the application already of thinking through the betrayal element of this. 
thinking through the reality that not everyone who confesses Christ will actually be in heaven. We've talked about this at length. And when we get to glory, we're going to see a lot of people we would not have expected to see and a lot of people we would have expected to see will not be there. But the reality of the matter is for us, should we be God's children? Should we belong to that number to be those special and valuable people to the Lord Jesus, those that he would die to? Our operative command, the single defining attribute that will give us confidence that we belong is our relationship to one another. You love the Lord Jesus? Amen. Glory, hallelujah. I do. I hope you do too. Love your neighbor. Love those in the church. Love those in the pews next to you. We talk about evangelizing. And one of the things we pray for on Wednesday nights, we pray for the elders, we pray for such, pray for this morning. Unbelievers to come into the church to hear the word of God. You know, one of the best, most kind of captivating elements of my preaching is how you receive visitors that come in the door. Because here I am preaching about love you have the chance to actually display it. I preach a sermon. You have have the opportunity to live a sermon, to handshake a sermon, to hug a sermon, to actually live it in front of your neighbors. So that when people come in, they say, man, those people really are weird. I mean, man, some of them, they don't seem to have that much in common, but they really like each other. Amen. Glory, hallelujah. May it always be that this church would look like that. May it always be that we would be defined in this way. And I'll make one last point. This passage is structured as such so that if you were reading it or living it, it really is very low on the assurance of salvation spectrum. If you're one of the disciples that have lived with Jesus, you know, for the last three years and such, this is not one that you're going to walk away from thinking, man, we've done it. We've done good. We're all right. This is a passage that's designed to leave you kind of with that wondering doubt in your back of your mind. And honestly, I think it's a good thing. There's a tension in the scriptures that we're supposed to captivate both elements of. One is we are supposed to be clearly and faithfully explaining assurance of salvation. So I have it almost every Sunday in assurance of pardon to, to see that God's promises are yes and amen. They are true in Christ Jesus and they are real. But at the same time, so that you actually search your heart to know if they apply to you. You look at most of the imbalances in preaching history have really fallen on one of those two sides. The overemphasis of self-evaluation or the overemphasis of the faithfulness of promises of God so that it doesn't really matter what you think or feel or do. But the reality of the world is for you to wrestle through, am I a child of God? And if I'm a child of God, do I love? And if I love, who do I love? Do I love my Savior and do I love his people? That we may all grow together as the saints of God in the body of Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word. We do ask for forgiveness of sin 
As we know that we have sinned against you in thought, in word, in deed, we know that there are many times where we have not loved your people as we ought. Many of us right now have specific people in mind or circumstances in mind where we have been quickly irritated or quick to anger and slow to be patient or just general dislike that we know is evil. And we ask for your forgiveness that we might be made new. Fill us with love for you have loved us first. Without your love, we would never love. Fill us again, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.